As you uh, probably know, we are finishing up this morning with part three of our series, I'm Not Afraid to Die. I'm Not Afraid to Die. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Grim Reaper, okay, right on, yeah. I'm not afraid of that guy, okay. I'm not afraid to die. I'm just curious, how many people... Uh, who've been with us, whether it's been online or in the series, or the services in person, have been encouraged in this series? How many people feel like, you know, their eyes have been opened a little bit to some of the realities of heaven? And that's what this series really has been about. Yes, I want to teach, but frankly, in three weeks, I mean, to teach on the vast uh, topic of heaven and the afterlife. I mean, you could do this all year long, really, and continue to tread into new water. My heart mostly has been to touch on enough of the, what I feel are really important parts of this topic in a way that encourages us, builds our hope, builds our faith and expectation for what we have to look forward to, not dread, after we depart from this world. That's really been my, my heart, so that we as Christians, because it's the design of our Creator to live in a way where we're unafraid of death. There's a confidence about what we will experience when we do leave this world. Let's face it, none of us know when our time is up. Job says every man's days are numbered, but none of us know when that day is. Only God knows. Just like only God knows the day and hour when Jesus will return, only God knows the day and hour when it's time for us to go home. But all of us will face that point at some time. We need to be prepared and we need to be ready. And when we are, according to what Scripture gives us, it really causes us to live differently while we're here in this uh, passing temporal world. We kind of live with a boldness and with a strength and a joy that death doesn't intimidate us or frighten us. How many people want to be able to live like that every single day, right? So we're going to get into part three today. I'm excited. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to start there. And last week we talked about um, how we're going through a series of pairs, a series of pairs kind of contrasting two things on a number of points that really apply to believers and unbelievers differently. And it's very important for us to understand this. I don't know why some people would shy away from it or think that, you know, you don't want to preach like that. But the reality is, is that the outcome for someone who accepts Christ versus someone who rejects Christ in this life, it's, it's very different. It's very different, and the Bible speaks a lot about it, and so we can't ignore that, we can't pretend that's not the case, and we can't stay away from that, but when we approach those things and we see how things turn out differently for those who reject Christ versus those who accept Christ, it, it doesn't cause us to live with some sort of like, yeah, you're going to get yours kind of approach. It, it, it grieves our heart to think that anyone would spend eternity apart from what heaven invites us into. You know, it grieves the heart of the Father that folks who are created would not spend eternity with Him, and so it should grieve our heart as well. There's nothing satisfying or rewarding about someone getting their due who didn't accept Christ in this life. It compels us to continue to want to share the good news and live a life that authentically reflects Jesus' love, not some sort of condemnation. 
Are you with me? So that brings me to my first point today before we dig in, which is two judgments. Two judgments. So let's read in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. I'm opening here because these verses actually talk about both of the points that we're going to get into today. So let's read. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. (laughs) Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Wow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we invite you, God, today to just dwell in our midst. Be with us. Let your presence saturate this place. Speak to us. Reveal hidden things previously unknown to us. Open our spiritual eyes to gaze into the depths of the mysteries of your word, God, yet the truth that encourages and satisfies our soul. There can be no unveiling and no revealing apart from you. Holy Spirit, would you unveil our eyes to see clearly things that you want us to see today. You are fully permitted to do whatever it is that you want to do in this place this morning. In each and every heart, in each and every life, we open up our arms, we invite you in, and we give you full permission into every room in our house. Do whatever you need to do, God. Shake us, to change us, to stir us up, that we may be spurred on to live more in line with the way you've called us to live. There's no time to mess around with this thing. God, would you move us more and more in the direction you want us to go today? In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Wow, just the sweet presence of the... Did you feel that? Wow. I love it. These verses address so much. There's so much depth in these 10 verses here. Paul speaks about new bodies. He speaks about we're going to kind of take off this earthly tent. We're going to put on a heavenly tent. He's referring to new bodies. There's other places in Scripture we're going to go today and peer into that a bit because it's a glorious thing. 
But he also says in the final verse here, verse 10, he says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's my first point, right, to judgment. Now, I've found that a lot of times talking with people who are Christians, that there can be a fear or an intimidation around this topic. Like I'm going to be I'm going to be judged and God's going to slap me on the wrist and he's going to punish me and there's going to be this sort of you know just just moment of oh terror almost that people think about this with. And I want to take you into this today deep because the reality is when you understand what the judgment seat of Christ is for the believer and for the unbeliever, it's anything but a time to dread or to be afraid of. It's a time to anticipate and look forward to. First thing we have to understand is that he's not talking about in judgment seat. He's not talking about uh, the act right here necessarily of judging matters in this world. Okay, there's a confusion a lot of times that people have. We all know that as Christians, we're not supposed to judge other people. That's pretty clear. Would you agree in Scripture? We don't need to build off too much off that. We don't judge other people's hearts. Only God can really know the heart. The Bible says we shouldn't be critical and condemning of other people. We're, we're, we're called to do that all throughout Scripture. But at the same time, this is where you can get a little confusing. At the same time, as Christians and as the church, we are compelled to judge matters in this world. To look upon things that are godly or ungodly and make judgment or determination, is another way to say that, about what those things are. It doesn't mean we judge the heart of someone, some sort of eternal condition that they're set to. We don't know that. It just means that as the church, we can look upon matters in this world and we can say this is a godly thing or this is an ungodly thing. If we can't do that, (laughs) then we're in a lot of trouble, right? Paul goes to a lot of length to break this down. He says, you guys are going through all these lawsuits appearing in courts before unrighteous people and all these things like you're the church you ought to be able to come together with elders and with wise counsel and you ought to be able to make determinations or judge simple matters in this earth because that's important for the church to be able to do that and do it well and he he also says and i don't even know what to do with this one he says because you're actually going to judge angels in heaven one day i mean i don't even know what to do with that one (laughs) But when we talk about judging, we have to understand there's a healthy part of this. There's different contexts of that word and that action. Yes, as the church, we should look upon matters in this world, in our lives, in our congregation, and say, hey, these things are godly, these things are ungodly. Encourage one another, uh, you know, be open and transparent with one another. We've got to be able to do those kind of things. But he says, when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, this is an event that is yet to take place that deals with eternal judgment, and he says that Jesus is the righteous judge, and he's the only one qualified to handle this particular event. But when we think about judgment seat, here's the breakthrough for a lot of people. The word, judgment seat, it's a word in the Greek called bima, and it can be favorable or unfavorable. It doesn't automatically imply one ruling or determination or another. It means it can go either way. You get that? That's what it means. They would use this particular word a lot 
in the Greek culture when they would have Olympic types of games. You know, the Greeks and the Romans were famous for that, right? And they would have podiums, and they would have medals, they would have awards. Many times, the competitors, if they would lose, they would actually be put to death. So the bema, or the judgment seat, was this place where the awards or the punishments were given out based on whatever the person who was inflicting that judgment would decide. So it could go either way. Think about those, you know, those steps that you stand on in the Olympic Games, first, second, and third. I remember one time we were doing a 5K at the church that we were a part of before we planted Life Church Act. And Pastor Mike and I, we were a little bit competitive about this thing. Okay, I know, not, you know, hard to believe, right? But we were like uh, just kind of jabbing at each other, you know, and giving each other trouble of who was going to win the, the 5K. And so the first year we put this thing on, and, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but he won, okay? He's a little deceptive. He's pretty fast, actually. Guy can run. I was like, whoa, holy cow. Huh, okay, I'm not going to underestimate him next year. So the next year, I trained and I prepared, you know, and I tried to get a little inside track, like, hey, what's your time? Are you, you know, where are you at right now? And so we go into it the next year, and we got real serious. We built those uh, podium things, like first and second and third place, you know, that you would stand on, and we got the medals and all that. And it was for a great cause, but it was, I was really more motivated about beating Pastor Mike, I think, than anything. And so we, we start the race, and we're, we're running the 5K, and uh, I kind of got out in front of him early on, and I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to try to gain on him, but he's like right behind me the whole time. He's like breathing down my neck. I'm like, man, I can't pull away from the guy, but I'm in front of him, so things are going pretty good, you know? Uh, but he was pretty smart strategically. He was saving this little burst of energy for the very end. <laughs> He kind of outsmarted me a bit. So we get to this, this last straightaway where it's like this long driveway and you can see the finish line maybe 100 yards out, you know, and we turn in and he's right behind me and all of a sudden, there he goes, he turns on the gas, you know, and I turn on the gas and I'm trying and I'm just like, he's got more left than I do. And so we get to the end and he crosses the finish line just like a little bit in front of me. I'm devastated, okay, <laughs> until... <laughs> They start posting the results on the big screen, and then it, co- it shows up, and my name and my time is right above Pastor Mike's name and Pastor Mike's time. And Pastor Mike, well, that, you know, that, that can't be right. I mean, you, know, I, you saw me pass the line in front of you. I said, yeah, well, let's get to the bottom of this. So what we found out is that we were being, you know, chip timed. So there was a little microchip in our tags. Well, pastor, your time doesn't start until you cross the start line. Well, I was further back in the group than Pastor Mike, so I crossed the starting line, and my time started a number of seconds after his did, so technically, my time was better than his, and I beat him. There's still a discrepancy going on, though. It's, it's like the election. There's still a recount happening, and nobody knows really where it's at, but I know. <laughs> Bema. <laughs> Awards and punishments. Well, let's look at where this, the Bible gives us indication that there are two judgments. Acts chapter 10, verse 42 And he commanded us to preach 
to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Okay, do you see that? Judge of the living and then judge of the dead. There's a judgment of the living, there's a judgment of the dead. In these scriptures, he's referring to those who are spiritually alive versus those who are spiritually dead. We talked about last week, new birth. Those who are born again have spiritual life. There's a new life in them that's eternal. Those who are not born again, they're born into the world in sin. They're spiritually dead, physically alive, spiritually dead. He says there's a judgment that will come for both people. 1 Timothy 4, or 2 Timothy 4.1 says, I charge you therefore, brethren, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And then 1 Peter 4.5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So as you see here, there are different outcomes that will occur in these different judgments. Again, think about punishments versus rewards. The judgment can go either way, and it in fact absolutely does for those who are in Christ versus those who have rejected Christ in this life. Jesus himself talks a little bit about the day of judgment. I want to remind you that it's a day that's yet approaching that doesn't actually occur until after Christ will return. Okay, this is Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels are with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory. So at this point is when He will inflict judgment. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. And so you can see that he is saying there's going to be a judgment for people on this side and there's going to be a judgment for people on this side. And let me just remind you again, Jesus is the one on the throne who is the righteous judge. This is the eternal judgment, okay? Jesus also said that while he was on the earth the first time, he said, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. But then he says, the word that I preach to you, it will judge all of you in the last days. Does that make sense? It's important we see. So Jesus came to save the lost. The day of judgment is yet approaching. What does that mean? There's time. That's what that means to me. There's time for us to still share the good news and change the outcome for a lot of lost and dying and perishing souls out there. And here's how Jesus says the outcome will go. Verse 46 in that scripture, he says that those that are on the one side are going to go into everlasting punishment, and those who are on the other side are going to go into eternal life. And I just want to make this point here, eternal punishment we also know, because we talked about this last week, Revelation 20, that all of the rebellious spirits at the great white throne judgment, remember the day that is yet approaching, they will be judged and they will be cast into the lake of fire. It's an eternal sentencing of punishment. But this is the thing that strikes me so uh, importantly that we need to understand, is that no human being 
who was ever created by God was created for hell. We were actually, every person was created for paradise. It's important to grasp, I think, because that changes the picture like God just, well, some people are going to end up here and some people are going to end up here and I'm just going to punish some and I'm not going to punish others. God created all people for paradise. Hell was created simply as a consequence of rebellion against him. People were not created for hell. Hell was created for a consequence of rebellion. She says that there'll be eternal punishment in the lake of fire for some, but on the others, I'll say, come into the kingdom and inherit all things. And so this is where this picture of the Bema judgment seat of believers that focuses more on rewards starts to set in for us. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 11. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this is the end of days that's now taking place. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is the one who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. Now the time of the dead, that they should be judged. Now listen to this. And you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Do you see that? Judgment that is all about rewards and things that God is bestowing upon his children compared to judgment that is about condemnation and about punishment as a result of rebellion. When we grasp that, we start to see that when we hear all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's not something we shy away from, that's something we look forward to because on that day, our Jesus is going to bestow eternal rewards upon us. And listen to the way even Daniel himself talks about this. Hundreds, thousands really of years before this event's going to occur. Daniel 12 verse 3. He says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 13, 43. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Wow. Again, I, 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 I'm like, I come to the edge of this thing, and I can only give and explain so much of this. There's this huge, vast ocean beyond our understanding that we just simply probably could, can't peer into until we get there. But it, it, it appears as if there's like, a degree of shining and brightness like stars forever and ever and that there'll be varying degrees of brightness based on the rewards that God gives us for the things that we did in this life. Many who turn others to righteousness, you're wise and you'll shine like the stars forever and ever. Wow. I mean, I think when I get there, I wonder if I'm going to see Moses and be like, dude, you're bright, you know? Whoa. Miss Christie's going to be very bright. Mike, you know, know. (laughs) kidding, kidding. Sorry, I got to have fun with this a little bit. All right. 
But, you know, the Bible speaks a lot about rewards. There's, there's five different crowns the Bible talks about. There, Jesus talks about a prophet's reward, the righteous's reward, a servant's reward. Listen, I'm just telling you, every act of service that we do for God to his people, I don't care if it's serving in children's ministry, I don't care if it's running a screen back there in a worship service, every act of service that we do for the Lord in our heart guess what? God's got a reward plan for that. That's amazing, isn't it? So the idea of the Christian's reward, the judgment, is really all about how God showers us with these eternal blessings based on how we lived and served him in this life. The consequence is not some sort of punishment or slap on the wrist because, let's face it, our sin is already judged. The blood of Jesus covers that. The sin that we have has already been judged. So we're not going to get into heaven and start being punished and slapped on the wrist and a bunch of different like sentencing things to the Christian because those sins have been judged and dealt with. It's about rewards and blessings that Jesus is going to shower us with. But we can choose not to live our life in that way, and the consequence is perhaps a lack of they're of those rewards. This gets a little bit deep, so travel with me for a second, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this real specifically. Verse 11, he says, there's no other foundation that anyone can lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, which is capital D, which means day of judgment, listen, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, the fire test, okay? And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now listen to this. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Here's the, here's the key. But he himself will be saved. Do you see that? So if, you, if we live our lives trying to build our own kingdom <laughs> and trying to build our own accolades and our own things with the wrong heart that only God can really peer into for us, we can fake people out all our life. But when we get to the judgment place, if the, reward, if, if the heart and the intentions were wrong, it says it's all going to be revealed for what it is. There'll be no appeals that will be made. All the facts will be presented and you're sitting before the highest authority that there is to sit before. This is it. So he's saying if, if you didn't live your life in the way where you served God and you, and you did it for the right reasons, then it's simply going to be revealed for what it is and there won't be rewards that will be given out for that. But if you were in your heart doing it for the right reasons, there's a reward for every last thing you did in God's service. I can only imagine. I mean, I can only imagine. But here's the other part we have to pull all of Scripture together to understand. When we get there and it happens this way, there can be no jealousy. There can be no envy. There can be no class systems where some people are more important because none of that kind of stuff exists in heaven. That's all evil, and no evil is even permitted to enter into the gates. 
No evil, no lie, no envy, no jealousy, no false thinking, none of that. So somehow it's all going to be glorious and it's all going to be a celebration. But each one of us will personally stand before Christ and we will receive rewards or lack thereof based on the way we lived our lives for him in this earth. Does that make sense? The two judgments. So I want you to be excited about the judgment seat of Christ for the believer but I also want us to clearly understand what the judgment for the unbeliever looks like because our heart should be to serve God in such a way where we can actually still impact eternity and what it will look like while we're here and there's still time. So the last thing I'll say about the two judgments is like, okay, when does this occur? When does the first judgment for believers happen? Well, Jesus says in Luke 14 that it happens at the resurrection of the just, which brings me to my next point. Let's not put that up yet. Which brings me to my next point, which is that there are two resurrections. Two resurrections. The resurrection of the just is also the first resurrection. Do you remember last week we said in Revelation 20, or the Bible said, that those who take part in the first resurrection, they're blessed. And the second death has no power over them. That's the first resurrection. Okay, What is a resurrection? Well, it's obviously the, the, a, a body being raised from the grave. Easy way of explaining that. That's what a resurrection looks like. And we know that in the Bible, it tells us there are two of them that will occur. Acts 24, 15. I have hope in God which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Of condemnation. Daniel says it this way in chapter 12, verse 2 Many who are asleep in the dust of the earth, whose bodies have been buried, shall awake or arise, be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So you see that, right? There's two resurrections. So when does the first one happen? It, it happens, the Bible tells us, at his appearing. So at the time of Christ's return, around tribulation, Armageddon, the marriage supper of the Lamb, all these things, the rapture, in this period of time, the end of days, that's when the first resurrection will occur, meaning we will be given new bodies. And these are not just any bodies, they're perfect bodies that are fit for a heavenly environment. Because the thing is, the natural body that our spirit lives in right now, did you know that? Your spirit living in a body, your spirit having a physical experience right now. But this physical body is not fit for the heavenly environment. It can't pass through. It has to be sown into the dust of the earth, but it will be raised incorruptible. Sown corruptible, but it's raised incorruptible, and it's a different body, a heavenly body that's now suited for the eternal realm. 
Isn't that, isn't that powerful to think about? Let's, let's peer into a couple of things that it says here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And folks, it really is that. It, it is a mystery. Okay, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So this is speaking about the time of the end and the rapture, and we're given new bodies. And if you really look at what the work of Christ through us is to continually transform us more and more into his image and his likeness, when we receive our heavenly bodies, then we'll, we, we will be fully conformed into his image at that time. But Jesus himself was the one who went first. He was the first one to be resurrected. He rose from the grave, and it said he became the first fruits for all of us who would come after that. So he made a way for us to now receive resurrected bodies. Because if the first fruits are holy, then the lump is holy. So he made a way for that to happen. And Paul goes to this whole extent to say, this is the basis of our faith here. If the dead don't rise, then what do we have? Then, then the grave is the end. But he says, if Christ really is risen from the grave and the dead do rise, then this is the most important thing that everybody needs to hear right here. Because this means that death is no longer permanent for those who are in Christ. And he says, what are some things about the resurrected body of Jesus that we can look at and just kind of mysteriously peer into? Well, he teleported. He teleported. He was on the road to Emmaus with some disciples, and he's gone. He was there with him, and then he was gone. He walked through walls. He walked through walls and just appeared to the disciples in a room where everything was closed off. He ate food with them. And one of the things that always interests me is that they, they never seemed to at first really recognize him. They did after a while of being with him. But at first, it's like by appearance, he's sort of not recognizable, which is some sort of interesting thing about the glorified body that perhaps is just in a glorified state, like hard to peer into in this world. Those are some of the things that we can look at and that we can contend for because it says that this corruptible body, the mortal body, is sown into the earth into weakness, but it is raised in power. So there'll be no limitations on the new spiritual body that there are in this physical worldly environment. I can only imagine what that's going to be and what that's going to look like. And Jesus gives us kind of a demonstration of that. Hebrews 11.35 says that when women had their dead raised, some dead will have a better resurrection. So we talked last week about how some people died, they were brought back to life, and then they died again, right? They died twice. But they're saying, yes, yeah, some of the women had their children resurrected from the grave, and they lived again, but there's a better resurrection than that that's coming for all of us, because their physical mortal body was resurrected, but there's a heavenly body, a resurrection that's a better one that's coming for all of us. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that different bodies are created for different environments. There are celestial bodies, which are heavenly, and there are terrestrial bodies, which are earthly. Both have a glory of their own, but they're created differently. 
So the heavenly body that God has created to give us will actually be fit and suited for the eternal realm with no limitations like this earthly realm presents to us. So have you ever felt sick? Have you ever felt tired? Have you ever felt exhausted? Have you ever felt worried? None of that stuff exists. It's impossible in this place, which is so exciting to think about. So that's the first resurrection. What is the second resurrection? Well, go back to Daniel chapter 12. Did I have that? Verse 2. Some will awake to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt, meaning they will arise or be resurrected. Revelation 20, great white throne judgment, said death and Hades will deliver up their dead at the second judgment for the rebellious spirits. So they will be resurrected from Hades They will be judged, sentenced into the lake of fire for eternity. This is where the second resurrection occurs. Again, resurrection of the living and the dead, resurrection of the just and the unjust, resurrection of life and of condemnation. You see, just like we have to have different bodies for the eternal realm of heaven, I don't know of another way to say this, but different bodies are required for the eternal place of punishment in the lake of fire. You see, it's not an end in the sense where they just no longer exist. It's death in the sense of eternal punishment. And there is a resurrected body, so to speak, that's given to the Spirit to be able to be in that environment of the lake of fire for all of eternity. But I say again, none of us are created for that place. We just have to understand that that's the consequence of rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ while we have time to receive him here in this life. Does that make sense? There's two judgments, two resurrections. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on today as we wrap this up, I'm not afraid to die, talking about heaven, is family reunions. Get this question all the time. You know, will I recognize my loved ones, will I know my loved ones in heaven? And according to Scripture, everything that we can digest from the Word of God, I would say confidently that we will know our loved ones and our family members who are with us in heaven. I'm going to give you some things to prove that. Genesis chapter 25, verse 8. And then Abraham breathed his last breath And he died at a good old age, an old man full of years, listen, who was gathered to his people, or his ancestors, or his fathers and forefathers, whoever were before him, was gathered to his people. Genesis 15, 15, God says to Abraham, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Why would he say it that way if he wouldn't know who his fathers were? If he wouldn't know who his family was? Talk about David. King David had a young son who died as an infant. He was sick. David prayed for him to be healed. He did not get healed. He died. And then David made a very powerful statement after that. He went into, left the temple from praying, and he went to go 
uh, have a meal after his son was gone, and he said, I'm not praying because he can no longer come to me. But now it is I who will go to him. And they see that. He knew that he was going to be joined again with him, just not in this life, in the eternal realm. Revelation tells us that the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundations of the heavenly walls. Why would their names need to be on there if we didn't know who their names were? Does it make sense? Yeah, there's going to be a recognition and a familiarity and an understanding of all of those who have gone on to be with Jesus for all of the ages after that. But I feel like this is one of those areas where we've got to get some good doctrine on We've got to get pretty firmly established because people can get really confused or off point about what this looks like and what happens. And if we read in Luke 16, Jesus gives us a really powerful story that describes this. He talks about a, a man who is a rich man who perishes, and he talks about a man named Lazarus who goes on to be in the presence of the Lord. And he says, between them, there is a great gulf that's fixed, and they cannot pass from one to the other. They cannot move realms. And he says that the, they, they even can recognize their brothers and those who are their family members because they're having conversations about the brothers and their eternal outcome. And, and the rich man says, I, I want you to send somebody back like Moses and preach to him. And Jesus says in the story, he says, no. Because if they have the word of God to testify to them, and this is enough right here. So here's some important things that we need to draw from that. When people depart from this earth, the Bible says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their spirits are in the presence of God now, awaiting the resurrection of the new bodies. Presence, their spirits are in the presence of God, but this is what's important, okay? Their spirits don't come back. They don't come back and walk among us. They don't come and visit us. They don't come and be with us. They're not transformed into angels and become guardian angels over us. People never become angels. That defies the creation design of God. There are angels, there are people, there are different glories to different bodies, celestial, terrestrial, all of that. So when they go and they're with Jesus, they're in the presence of God for all of eternity. They're entirely fixed on him. They are entirely in glory. And there is nothing that is sad or disappointing about that. That's the part that my mind tries so hard to grasp, and I only get to in part, but it encourages me when I think about it. Because when we lose someone in this life, let's face it, we grieve. And the Bible tells us that it's good to do that. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. We grieve because we've lost them. And that's, that's a real thing, and that's a healthy process that we as believers need to be able to go through in a godly way, grieving and mourning. But we grieve for our loss, but let's face it, we're not grieving for them. <laughs> you get that? We're not grieving for them. 
Because there's nothing to grieve about where they are in perfection and in glory. We're grieving because of our own loss. But here's the key for the believer. Remember, death has lost its sting. So we grieve only temporarily. Temporarily, not in finality, because we are not eternally separated. We are simply mortally separated until the time of the reunion will occur. Jesus himself says something real amazing. He says, I will, I'm giving you the oil of gladness or the oil of joy for your mourning. This blows me away. Because when they would mourn and they would grieve, up until Jesus introduced this idea, they never thought about bringing oil out. Oil was a celebration of life and of victory and of triumph. Go with me where I'm going here. When they mourned and they grieved, they ripped their clothes, they put on uh, sackcloth, and they had ashes all over them, and they mourned. And Jesus says, I'm giving you the oil of gladness and the oil of joy for your mourning. How is that possible to put on oil of victory and celebration and of triumph in a time where we lose people in this world? It's because, brothers and sisters, death has lost its sting. And the grave is not going to hold us. This is not the end. And we have something even more glorious that we can look forward to. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But we have to understand, I think, just. What God tells us about these things so that we can get anchored and grounded. Because if we're not, and I've seen it with a lot of people, they can be misled and misguided. And they can begin to entertain things in the spiritual realm that are very dangerous for their soul. We have to know that when our loved ones depart, they're in the presence of Jesus and we look forward to that reunion that's coming. But right now in this earthly environment, it's Jesus who we relate to in the spiritual realm. He is our sufficiency, our strength, and he is the only voice from the eternal realm that is speaking into our lives. It's very important that we understand that. So I want to close with this thought. I'm not afraid to die. We have no idea. None of us, when that day will come. Yet Jesus is very clear that we must live like it might happen tomorrow, today. Because we live differently when we know that the day is approaching. Versus ignore it, don't talk about it, don't want to think about it, just want to pretend that's not going to happen. Jesus says, no, 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 you, 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 need, to, you need to think about it. You, you, you need to talk about it. You, you, you need to have the conversation. But let me lead you in those and, and come with me in this journey because when you do, I promise you, you're going to be so joyful when you see what I have to say. Let's have the conversations. Let's talk about it because there's only something to look forward to and there's nothing to dread. Because, yeah, you're going to die. Every man's days are numbered. But, but you're going to die, but you're going to live forever. <laughs> oh, and that, my friends, is the joy and the hope of the Christian life. Yeah, we're going to die. 
but we're going to live forever. And it's going to be a perfect place with no pain, no sadness, no sickness. And we can only look upon that now and anticipate with joy and expectation that which good, 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 loving Father who's good, good, good all the time says, I have this for you. And he says in his word, I want you to take these things. And what does he say? Well, in with this, I want you to encourage one another with these things. Let's stand to our feet and let's worship the Lord before we go today.